It's Midday Magazine for Wednesday, September 6th. I'm Hannah Floor. Petersburg Chief of Police James Kerr filed a suit against the borough of Petersburg in March of 2022 for allegedly defaming him and presenting him in a false light. That case was scheduled for a jury trial in the Juno Superior Court and would have begun next spring. But as KFSK's Shelby Herbert reports, the borough filed the case as a civil rights suit in the district federal court late last month. Chief Kerr addressed Petersburg's Borough Assembly in November of 2021 to criticize the COVID-19 mask mandate in place at the time. He said carrying out the mandate could hurt the morale of local law enforcement officers. Kerr says he spoke as a private citizen. The borough disagrees. It considers him to be a high-ranking public official who commented on a matter of public concern as a matter of law. Assembly members Dave Kensinger and Jeff Miucci complained to the borough about the views Kerr expressed at the meeting. Kerr alleges he received constant retaliation from the borough for his statements against masking enforcement. In March of 2022, Kerr submitted a document titled Timeline slash Overview of Events to Deborah Thompson, the borough clerk. It contained his perspective of the events leading up to that point. The borough processed that document as a harassment complaint. The borough brought in its attorney to provide legal counsel on whether Chief Kerr's speech was protected by the First Amendment when he objected to police enforcement of the mask mandate in front of the assembly. They also evaluated whether the conduct of assembly members Nucci and Kensinger constituted harassment. The attorney handed over that confidential legal report to borough manager Steve Giesbrecht, who is Chief Kerr's supervisor. And then KFSK got a hold of that report through a public records request. It said no unlawful harassment or bullying took place, and it included a redacted copy of Chief Kerr's timeline document. The borough also issued a public statement about the situation. Kerr's original case against the borough was for allegedly defaming him and portraying him in a false light in that statement. He alleges that he never made a harassment complaint, that the independent investigation wasn't really independent, and that the borough's actions made him look like somebody who makes baseless claims of harassment. Kerr requested a jury trial on all claims in the case last December. That case was just scheduled for a jury trial in the Juno Superior Court, which would have begun next spring. But then it was withdrawn from the state superior court and moved to the district federal court about a month later, on August 24th. It's now a civil rights suit. Chief Judge Sharon Gleason will preside over the case in the U.S. District Court for the District of Alaska in Anchorage. In Petersburg, I'm Shelby Herbert. And this story has been corrected to reflect the fact that the borough refiled the case in the district federal court, not Chief Kerr. Commercial fishing and dance may seem like an unlikely combination, but for sick erased artist Sarah Campen, it just makes sense. Campen has released a short film that she describes as a window in the life and livelihood of commercial salmon trolling in southeast Alaska. So, um, yes, I made a dance film about commercial trolling, and it's called Salmon Dance. And um, people definitely 
uh, ask me <laughs> what that is, what the heck that is. Um, I like to describe it as a mini documentary about trolling that's told through dance. Campen, who grew up in Sitka and now lives on Lemisher Island in Icy Strait, received an Individual Artist Award from the Rasmussen Foundation in 2020 for the project. She initially conceived Salmon Dance as a live performance piece using choreography built from the gestures used in commercial fishing. And then COVID happened, and it turned into a film. The film runs just over 10 minutes and incorporates contemporary dance and documentary footage of fishing in and around Icy Strait and Cross Sound, as well as audio interviews with fishermen. It's a lot of really beautiful storytelling about what this work is and why people do it and why they care about it and what the what this lifestyle means to them. You can listen to the full interview with Campen and guest Michael Mossbach and learn more about Campen's work at kciw.org. No one was hurt during last month's record flooding in Juneau, but a cat named Leo went messing when a home collapsed into the Mendenhall River. But as Katie Anastas reports... He's now home safe. Elizabeth Wilkins rented the white house on Riverside Drive that fell into the river. She spent the last month looking for a new place to live. She's also been looking for Leo, a black and white cat with yellow eyes. You can come over. Come on over. This is about you. (laughs) He's pretty great. Leo had been missing since last month's flood. On Thursday, she found him. Now, they're sitting together on the floor of a cabin out the road. Wilkins says reuniting with Leo has provided a break from the stress of the last several weeks. Yesterday, we couldn't stop, like, laughing because it just felt really good, like, like this release to just be like, oh, my gosh, this is, like, the best thing that anyone's ever heard in, in, in at least a month, you know. It's nice to have some good news. David Albert adopted Leo with Wilkins during the pandemic. He says Leo seems relieved, too. He, he, he slept hard last night, and uh, he was just a little snuggle bug. Like, every time I'd sit, he'd come over and sit on my lap and sleep on my chest, and he's just so happy to be among family again. Wilkins and Albert were both out of town during the flooding, but they watched the viral video of the house collapsing into the river. They think all the noise made Leo run away before it fell in. I watched the video of the house over and over again just to, like, calculate, just to, like, figure out, A, what was it like to be in it? And is it it possible that he's okay or is it impossible? And I look just looking at the video that, you know, the disaster that that was, it was hard to imagine that anybody could be okay. Still, Wilkins spent the next few weeks scrolling through photos posted by Juno residents trying to help people find their missing cats. Then, on Thursday, someone posted a photo of a black and white cat in her yard in a Juno Facebook group. He had a distinctive black spot on the back of his right leg. He had been analyzing all these black and white cat photographs, and this time it was him for sure. Wilkins teaches at Montessori Borealis and Juno Community Charter School. After school on Thursday, she went looking for Leo at the woman's house, less than a mile from her former home. She called his name, and Leo came running out. Leo is no Frady cat. He was rescued from an abandoned building, and he still spends a lot of time outside. Wilkins thinks it served him well this last month. I think he has been 
using his best survival skills. Um, he is a good hunter. Still, Albert says Leo has lost some weight. He's on an all-you-can-eat diet now. Wilkins is house-sitting for friends while she looks for a more permanent place to live. She's considering all her options, including a camper van, a tiny home, or even a sailboat. She's hopeful something will work out. Leo purrs on the couch next to her and Albert. This is just like a little glimmer of hope or life, a little tiny good news in this otherwise really, really sad and catastrophic story. Leo has already caught a mouse since he got home. But between his outdoor excursions, he's lounging on the couch and enjoying his kibble, happy to be back with his favorite humans. In Juneau, I'm Katie Anastas. The Coast Guard icebreaker Healy docked in Kodiak's Pier 1 last week as its final stop before an Arctic expedition. The ship was in town to restock on supplies and give the crew a bit of time on land before they spend weeks at sea. Brian Venois went on board the ship and has this res- report. The Healy's engines were running as crews walked the decks performing routine maintenance last week. The ship is 420 feet long, about half the length of the pier, and is the largest vessel the Coast Guard operates. Kodiak is the ship's last stop in Alaska before heading on the year's final Arctic mission. Michelle Shalop, the Healy's captain, says the hull is specially designed for getting through ice to access some of the most remote places in the world. Steaming at seven knots, we can break through up to four and a half feet. If we get into the eight feet, about three meters, then we need to do what we call back and ram. So the ship is very, very powerful and very heavy. We're 16,000 long tons. So we're able to use um, the ship's momentum and weight to, to break through ice. The boat has two inches of steel on the bow and can even maneuver in ice fields. However, the crew does their best to avoid large icebergs. Shallop says while the Coast Guard operates the vessel and it's capable of performing Arctic rescues, the vessel's main purpose is research. The Healy was built in collaboration with the National Science Foundation. So we have all the authorities that a Coast Guard vessel normally would have, and we can conduct those in the high latitudes in addition to supporting the National Science Foundation and other organizations in conducting science. Igor Polyakov is a professor with the University of Alaska Fairbanks and one of the lead scientists aboard the icebreaker. He says the information scientists get from remote locations is crucial for climate research. We inform communities, stakeholders that changes are coming. We ex- may expect with a certain probability that this and that happens in certain period of time. That's our mission. And politicians take this information forward to make decisions. Polyakov says the information they find in the North Pole is direct proof that human-caused climate change is happening. One example they're monitoring on this mission is a layer of fresh water under sea ice. That layer usually acts as a buffer between warm saltwater currents and sea ice, but Polyakov says it's under threat from climate change. This fresh water is very cold, and it prevents ice from melt from the below. But what we observe now, we, thanks to our program and thanks to logistical support from Healy, now we see that this layer of fresh water is disappearing. He says cooperation between northern countries is key for this kind of Arctic research. There are so many international waters. There are so many international collaborations uh, ongoing in the Arctic. So without international collaboration, we cannot proceed. 
The vessel's next port call will be in Europe to connect with scientists there. After this mission, the ship will return to its home port in Seattle for the winter. Aboard the icebreaker Healy, I'm Brian Venois. The Alaska Department of Public Safety and the Anchorage Police Department announced Tuesday that they are publishing new quarterly reports specifically about missing indigenous people. Alaska has a particularly high case count of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. Federal, state, tribal, and grassroots interests have all pushed to identify why and to improve safety in indigenous communities. Most of the information in this new report comes from existing public missing persons data sets, but it does include a new data point about the circumstances around each unresolved disappearance. Austin McDaniel, a spokesperson for the State Department of Public Safety, says the agency's analysts had to individually go through all 280 cases of missing people who are indigenous or of unknown race to mine that piece of information. Some of the cases date back to 1960. Yeah, that was a, a substantial list. We've never gone through and publicly provided this level of clarity on missing persons cases that are, you know, in, in the eyes of law enforcement, still open. Analysts coded the circumstances into one of four broad categories. More than three-quarters were attributed to environmental events, like plane crashes or wilderness mishaps. The agencies still consider them missing if their remains haven't been found. Another 30 cases were coded not suspicious. McDaniel says these could be situations where the missing person had fled the country and law enforcement hadn't been able to confirm that they're alive and well. The rest, about one-eighth, fell into suspicious or unknown categories. The department says the new report comes out of discussions on the Governor's Council on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Persons. Members wanted more transparency and better data reporting on missing Indigenous people. McDaniel says the new reports could also help inform high-level decisions about how to focus law enforcement resources and improve communication between agencies. There certainly could be a functional use on on the law enforcement side. The state troopers can access state trooper data, and in reality, the Anchorage PD can access Anchorage PD data. That doesn't usually um, allow us to have a ton of insight into uh, what other agencies are doing. The state also committed to add every missing person's information to a national database within 30 days of them being reported missing. In a 2018 report, the Urban Indian Health Institute said agencies' poor reporting to this specific national database contributes to undercounts and false perceptions of the issue. Kendra Kloster is a member of the Governor's Council and works on law and policy at the Alaska Native Women's Resource Center. She says she was glad to hear about the new reports. She says it's a good step forward. There is more to do. This isn't like the end all be all of all our data systems here, where there's still a lot of other um, information to collect and to put in this. So there's lots of other places across rural Alaska that are not um, included. This first quarterly report only covers cases handled by the state troopers and Anchorage police. McDaniel says they hope more agencies will participate in the future. For KFSK, I'm Hannah Floor.